welcome to Researcher Revealed, the podcast where we go behind just the name on the conference proceedings, presentation, poster, or research paper to learn a little bit more about the researcher who helped inform that work. On today's episode, episode seven, we have Rhys Williams joining us from Wales. He's a pharmacist and he specializes in heart failure. And he's been very active in lots of different studies and I asked him to join us to talk to us a little bit more about his journey into research and um, how that's been going for him. I hope you enjoy and I will see you on the end of the conversation. Um, today we have joining us Rhys Williams from Wales. Rhys, say hello to everybody. Hi everybody. <laughs> Short and sweet. <laughs> I was going to say, um, Reese. Besides just saying hello, can you tell everybody um, what your role is, where you work, um, things like that? No problem. So I'm a cardiology pharmacist uh, based in the Princess of Wales, which is in Bridgend. So we're slap bang in the middle between Cardiff and Swansea on the uh, South Wales coastline. Um, I've been working in cardiology now for about eight years. Um, so quite different for um, pharmacists generally rotate until they find their area of specialty. So, yeah, it's been about seven, eight years and more specifically, more focused on heart failure within the last four years. So that's my job. That's who I am. Oh, thank you. So like me, interested in heart failure, that just makes you one of the coolest people in the world. Um, before we get into the actual uh, episode, um, just to help everybody get to know you a little bit is we do what I call a rapid 11. So this is just some quick questions, knee jerk answers, um, just to get to know you a little bit better. Okay. Are you ready? Ready as long as there's a profanity filter nearby, just in case we're good to go. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. Hopefully none of these actually uh, induce profanity. They're not that, they're not that serious. Right. First question. Are you a Windows or a Mac man? Mac. Ooh, you're the first person I've had on the podcast to be a Mac person. Mm, very controversial. Difference between Microsoft Office, though. So you can okay. get that on Mac, so I'll go with Mac. But bearing in mind I can have my Microsoft Office, then I'm okay. Okay. Fair enough. We'll allow that. <laughs> um, and are you a tea or coffee? Coffee, person. all the way coffee all right and when you're doing things like writing or work on a computer um do you do that in silence or with music music absolutely. music oh what kind i think it varies um i'm not going to say that i've really got a classical ear but if i need focus then i might go that okay. um it depends on if i got a very quick deadline then i might go for something a bit more fp just to get me through it <laughs> So it varies. Yeah, depending on your mood. That's fair. But I'm enough. a music man. I'm a music man. Oh, nice, nice. Um, and where do you tend to work? At home or in an office? Uh, so um I think that's a bit of a mixture of both. But to want my four year old interrupting me is definitely at work. <laughs> Otherwise this podcast would be very different. <laughs> probably a lot more fun and probably a little bit more animals involved, but you know. Absolutely. Very cool. 
Um, and when do you feel, what time of day do you feel you are most productive? Evening, nighttime. Oh, okay, nice. Um, and do you have a favorite referencing system or manager? And what is it? Um, no, I can't say I've got a favorite. I'm definitely a Vancouver man over Harvard. No, 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 like a tool, like the, the oh. management system that you use. No, I'm old school. I basically um, use words. Um, I use kind of notes and rev reviews to highlight my references. And then I do it all at the end. I don't actually have a specific wow. tool to help me reference. That is slightly impressive, but also a little worrying. <laughs> Probably doing things a hell of a lot harder than I need to be, but <laughs> the system works. As long as you have a system that works, that's what's important. It was so funny. I think there's probably more people in the world that still do the system that you and that you use, the old school system. I recently was um, editing a, a little editorial that I wrote, and the editor was like, "Oh, can you change the the." type of referencing style that you use and because I use EndNote I did it in like 2.2 seconds because all you have to do is like press the button and he was like wow that was really fast. <laughs> I clearly need to invest <laughs> it takes a lot of time to learn a lot of time to learn but anyway um, what about when it comes to data visualization tools do you have a favorite not particularly. I gotta admit, my my tool of choice will always be, well, Microsoft Office, Excel. It's yeah. I'm a I'm a simple guy. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, there's there are no right or wrong answers to this. I've actually found like it's really interesting what people say, and there's so many more systems out there than I even know existed. I'm I'm a combination of an Excel person as well, so I'm I'm with you on that. Excellent. Um, what about favorite desk desk snack oh that's a tough choice <laughs> i think it's got to be a custard cream Ooh. oh now i'm craving a custard cream <laughs> <laughs> i haven't had my tea yet so. <laughs> um so when it comes to planning or organizing your life your research your projects are you a digital person or are you a paper and pen person Organization of my life is definitely digital because okay. I need things to talk to each other. But if I'm planning a project, I need to have things on pen and paper in front of me to scribble it out first. Nice. Nice. I love pen and paper. I'm similar, though. I mix and match. Yeah. Um, and what book are you currently reading? So I just finished a book, funny enough, okay. last night. So it's a book called Burn. Um I would need to find the author's name, but it talks about metabolism and it's about our inner engines and it talks about kind of energetics on a human level, bio biological level, but also then the calories consumed and energy via it kind of industrial revolution and how it all feeds into the wider goal. That but, sounds fascinating. I'm going to chase you up for the details on that book, because what I like to do in the podcast description is put down the books that you're reading because some people might be even particularly inspired or want to read it after hearing you explain it so I will chase you on email to get those details so I can include that in the description last question who is a researcher 
that you admire. They can be alive or dead. My journey into research has actually been fairly short, as you'll probably understand over the, uh, the rest of the podcast. I think one of the researchers I admire, and I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast because he'll make me blush, um, would definitely be Mark Petrie. Okay. Because I think his style have had a lot to do deal with uh, the professor over the last kind of couple of years. And I like the down-to-earth nature that he brings to that. He's a big heart failure researcher, yet he is so relaxing to be around. You can have just a regular conversation with him. He makes you feel very invited and included. Um, So I've got a lot of admiration for, for Mark, but keep that between us and the listeners because I don't know if I can look him in the eye if uh, if he hears that part. <laughs> Your secret is safe with me and all of the rest of the world <laughs> listen to this podcast. I'm sure he'll never hear about it. Someone's going to drop me in it, I swear. I'm sure somebody will drop you in it. I don't know how to tell you this, but yeah. it's gonna, it, it, it might come back to haunt you. Yes, I, I'm sure it will. Perfect. Thank you. See, I told you they wouldn't be too hard. <laughs> I did okay. So I managed it without find... swearing. Yeah, and exactly. We're all good. <laughs> um, so what I'd like to ask you now, and you started to kind of hint into it, is how come research? How did you get to be involved in heart failure research? So... My start into research um, was actually when I was a pre-registration pharmacist. So I qualified or I finished my undergraduate degree back in 2010 and I was working in Morriston Hospital, which is based in Swansea. Um, Now, part of the trainee year and the the postgraduate diploma that we do in pharmacy involves you to be involved in audit. So I decided to throw myself in the deep end. I didn't know much about renal medicine and we had a kind of high flying pharmacist there who was heavily involved with the renal department. So decided I want to learn, chuck myself straight in the deep end. What turned out to be what should have been a simplistic audit, for instance, you know, convey to nice guidelines, what percentage of patients, why might that be the case, turned into um, a massive rabbit hole of um patients using calcium emetics so sinicalcet in mineral bone or uh, renal bone disease but it wasn't just that it was compliance for nice and then it was how many binders are they on tablet burden per day does sinicalcet change that looking at their bone profiles 12 months before and after and it just escalated massively okay the first time the tutor basically told me draft a data collection form go away, come back in a week, we'll have a look at it. Well, he must have laughed his ass off because the form I came back with was a Microsoft Excel sheet, mm-hmm. which was all free text, no standardization at all. Basically, name, hospital number, dose of Sinicalcet, and mm-hmm. um, nice criteria, maybe yes, no, maybe YN, just to mix it up a bit, Um and have no standardization of data at all. So we basically sat there. We had a good, well, he had a good chuckle at me. As I say, we might need to just work on this a little bit. So 
we ended up spending a very late night on the renew unit with the thanks of a Chinese takeaway and hammered out this Excel sheet that basically collected the data for us. And that was my kind of birth into Excel. Um, but apparently I liked it so much I went back for more. So then we decided to compare Sinecalcid to patients that underwent a parathyroidectomy and mm -hmm. to a kind of head to head. So that kind of um, those audit projects as such gave me that introduction to actually digging into data. It was real world evidence and it was nice to see that final product. You know, okay. all of a sudden I was a trainee pharmacist. This data was presented at the All Wales Renal Network. And that was my work. So I was like, oh, OK, great. Um, then there was probably a bit of a radio silence on um, practice based evidence and things like that for a long time. Um, since then, you know, kind of did different things, got my certificate in prescribing. Um, and then the cardiology job came along. So my, you know, kind of previous background towards that was surgical ITU. This is brand new to me. Um, 2019. Uh, the same renal pharmacist uh, was approached to do a joint um, kind of, I say, research question in collaboration with uh, Pharma. Okay. So the query was looking at intravenous iron, real world evidence in renal patients and heart failure. Okay. And it turns out the heart failure lead in Bridgen, Dr. Wong, um, was discussing this with um, Chris Brown, the pharmacist, and said, well, you've got Reese and Progen with you. Why don't you just use him to help with the data collection? Because he's done this work for me. Yeah. And it just snowballed ever since. Um, so what we tried to do is basically real world evidence of Iron Man before it was published. Um, <laughs> That's a very controversial thing to say that you did Iron Man before Prof Calra. I'll constantly remind him of it. <laughs> um, <no. laughs> So what we tried to show was basically over a period of 12 months is how did their hematinics change, hemoglobin status. We did Minnesota questionnaires on pre and post on all these patients. But it was great because I was back involved in that kind of research evidence and collecting real world data. Um, ever since the iron project, it was a case of would you like to do HEFREF up titration clinics? Uh, OK. Um, and then again, the data collection started snowballing. Um, you know, an eight week proof of concept, you have to basically collect as much as you can to prove it works. Yeah. Um, that then eight weeks then turned into 12 months data collection uh, post uh, pan. So we just started the clinics after the second wave of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, that proof of concept then turned into making it kind of substantive post. Mm -hmm. Now we're in the middle of a joint working project to try and increase those sessional times to allow heart failure nurses to do more in-reach and palliative care reviews. So we're back in the middle of more data collection. We're going to try and compare that to previous. Um, so it's just kind of since that iron project, the data collection hasn't stopped. Um, and every time I say to myself, oh, it'd be nice when we get to the end of this, I can say that as long as I want. I think I'm doing this till I retire. It's <laughs> it's just going to keep going and going. So that is so fascinating. So I want to unpick this a little bit with you, because I think your experience into and your journey into research is a really interesting one, um, because to me and listening to your story, your experience has been much more 
along uh, being a member of a bigger team rather than being the the lead of a given project. Is that is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's pretty um, that's pretty accurate. And within that, then, uh, do you basically land uh, only in doing data collection? Um, or do you get more involved in other parts of like a given audit project or research project? So I think that's where I'm kind of in this middle ground now where I'm starting to okay. transition from the data collector to more of the the driver of the project. So I'm, I'm kind of in that phase now. We're trying to um, get junior pharmacists involved as well. And so look, this is what you can do. Get your post, get your data out there, get your posters out there, you get to meet other people with like interests. Um, so I'm in that kind of phase now of trying to not showcase what you can do, but, you know, prove by doing, I think is yeah. probably more my method of uh, education and training is this is what can be done. I've done it. There we are. Let's try it. Yeah. So with most of the projects that you've been involved in, have they been more of like an audit style project or have you also been involved in like full blown research projects that have had to have ethics and grants and things like that? So, no, it's mainly just real world evaluation. Um, OK, we're quite fortunate. The heart failure leads in Bridgend is very proactive. He is on top of the evidence. He wants to trial new projects as soon as the evidence comes out, or sometimes he'll start planning this before, anticipating those kind of results. So say for like using Iron Man, I'd say that we were big users of intravenous iron way before the results of Iron Man were ever published. Um, the use of SGLT2s, I think, you know, you'd see a patient and go, is he diabetic? Yeah, is this HbA1c? I put him on an SGLT2. Um, he's that type of guy. He, he can kind of foresee the future. I need to tap into him more. He might help me win the lottery. Um, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> he sounds no. like an important person to know. So I'm going to ask you a question because um, there's... I always this ongoing debate between what is research and what you can do with what 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 you're allowed to do in research versus what is audit, what is um, quality improvement. And now you're introducing this new term. So I want you to define for us what you mean by real world evaluation. What does that look like? Um, I think it's my kind of definition to that would be you look at the existing service being provided and you're trying to find those ways of making sure. I mean, the key for kind of us was making sure patients were seen quickly. So if they had that BMP that came back, they were symptomatic that you're seeing them within two weeks. But the the doctors were obviously inundated. They were having way too many patients being referred in um, and seeing a lot of follow ups, etc. Meeting that two week deadline was crucial, but we just couldn't physically do it. Um, expanding the MDT, so it was previously heart failure nurses and consultant-led, uh, then bringing in pharmacy to that to say, well, actually, medicines management is what we do. That is our bread and butter. So it was a case of, right, evaluating the current service. What's our current waiting time? What therapies are they prescribed? What mean dosages are they prescribed? Bring a pharmacist into the mix, right? We're going to try and take on some of that work. First of all, can we replicate those results? 
can we do can we achieve what is currently being met and that's mm-hmm. what the, that was the first eight week proof of concept and we did we managed to get patients on safely and patient feedback was quite positive as well so okay. real world evaluation is know where you're at and then you come up with a service design that is different to try mm-hmm. and focus on those outcomes and then it's about collecting the data to show if you've met those outcomes so i'd say that's my kind of interpretation of real world evaluation okay that's the, it's that's very helpful thank you um and with real world evaluation are you then able to you know like you said do you have to get ethics in order to collect some of this extra data or can you just sort of do it like a clinical audit would in that if it's normal clinical data and it's not identifiable you can include it so what what are the rules of the road around conducting a real world evaluation so the projects that we are doing locally are flagged to the local health board just to let them know what data we are collecting and what obviously Mm -hmm. we're going to be showcasing but by any means, like what the work that we're doing isn't against kind of standard of care. This is just basically what we should be aiming to get. So I'm not collecting, I'm not treating anyone differently as per the guidelines. I'm not going to give in preferential treatment anywhere either. We're not doing, um, you know, using IMPs, for instance. This is just, mm. this is what the guideline says we should be doing. How? Uh, what are we achieving now? How can we achieve it differently? Um, so whether that be through service redesign, whether it be bringing in other members of the MDT to try and help get that goal, that's pretty much, I would say, where my um, focus has been so far. That's a fabulous way of explaining it, Reese. Thank you. Because I think so many people get bogged down in it and you've just made it very, very simple. And that's fabulous. Thank you. <laughs> so that goes on to my next question, though, is... Um, and because I've seen your bio, which yeah. will be in the description for everybody else <laughs> to read and catch up on, but I got the inside loop. Um, how did you learn all of this stuff? Because while you have um, prescribing, while you have some master's training, you're, you don't yet, and I'm going to use that word purposely, <laughs> you don't yet have a PhD. So how did you navigate and learn all of these nuances on the difference between, you know, a clinical audit, real world evaluation, or the Mac daddy of, you know, a big CTIMP research study? Um, so that kind of goes back to some of my junior time in Morriston, where um Again, I like to check myself in the deep end. If I don't understand something, I'll just go, I'll do it, and then try and work my way through it. Um, so I decided to put my name forward to be a kind of second pharmacist for clinical trials in Swansea. Um, now, Swansea University and Morrison Hospital have quite a big diabetology research department. So a lot of the research was involved mainly around diabetes, but mm-hmm. it gave me a kind of taste for using IMPs, you know, kind okay. of uh, good clinical practice training, et cetera. So that was my yeah. kind of introduction into clinical trials and using IMPs. Okay. Um, just to hold hold that thought for two seconds, um, just in case people don't know what an IMP is, what's an IMP? That is where you're using an investigational medicinal product. 
Perfect. Thank you. So for in plain language for everybody out there, um, it's basically an unknown medical product. So it might not have a name. It could be a drug. It could be a device. It's some sort of intervention that has yet to be clinically proven to be effective and safe for patients of a given disease pathology. Anyway, back to what you were saying. So I think that kind of gave me the taste for what clinical trials was about. But then mm -hmm. again, they were mainly sponsored studies. So these are big multi-center, multinational studies. Yeah. Um, it was more the kind of um, local audits and real world practice um, data collection. Then it's just kind of differentiating between the two. And that's the thing. The real world evaluation didn't require the ethics approvals because we were just providing the standard of care. What we were trying to do was improve that standard um so yeah it's very i'm very much a kind of a um on the job learner i yeah. um i can read a textbook as many times as i want to that information will not sink in i am much <laughs> better having a conversation one-to-one -one with somebody yeah learning by doing um so you know um part of the junior training was provide a clinical a critical appraisal of a paper so actually yeah. learning about research and, you know, the figures involved, I think to a junior pharmacist can be mind blowing. Mm. You ask them to look at the paper and say, well, what can you do? You put a Kaplan-Meyer curve in front of them and they just go grey. Uh, <laughs> which <laughs> can be very funny. It's not just senior pharmacists that have that reaction. I've watched them senior consultants and medics have the same reaction. <laughs> and if you want to play a joke on someone, it can be very funny. Um, but I think it was a case of I just had to learn um, and a lot of that I got to admit as well is just taking the time to speak to Aaron Wong, speaking to Chris, my previous mentor in renal and just kind of deciphering that information, what mm. it truly means. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's I'm a very much on the job learner, if you haven't already guessed. Yeah, no, I think, uh, well, I think that there are lots of ways to learn out there. And I think that once you figure out how you learn, maximizing that method of learning for you is the best way to make sure that you know how to learn. One of the things um, for me and my PhD that took a lot of adjustment for me is I was very used to academic learning because um, I'm addicted to higher education. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am. Seriously. <laughs> that's a story for a different day but like i'm gonna ask you what's next my life i've been in school <laughs> um but when i started my phd all of a sudden it was a totally different style of learning i was very much used to here's a textbook here's an assignment go away do a paper and you're aiming for getting a good grade, being accurate, blah, blah, blah. And it's all about being able to prove that you've learned and that you are able to hold on to that information and apply that information. But in a PhD, it completely shifts because it's no longer just about do you know your stuff? It's about can you think? <laughs> This is where I might struggle. <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. Trust me, I struggled a lot. Um, and it's it's just a very different way because I was very much used to like, and I'll I'll never forget it because um, one of the first things that I gave to one of my supervisors 
I wrote it all up and he gave it to me back as sort of like a summary of what my project was going to be about. And there was this one sentence in it and he highlighted it and he put a comment by it and he said, is this right? And I was absolutely incensed. <laughs> I was beyond mad because it was it was a statement about something that has had over a decade of research around by a well-reputed researcher, uh, nurse researcher, like la, 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 like the whole thing. Like there was nothing wrong with the statement. As far as I was concerned, it was 100% true. And I was like, what is he on about? Is this right? I'm like, how does he not note this? <laughs> like this is not rocket science, but I wasn't brave enough to confront him about it. So I just deleted it and pretended it never happened. <laughs> <laughs> ostrich ostrich method i love yeah, it yeah pretty much ostrich method but the truth of it was is what he was saying to me is he was like do you believe that this is true got you so not is it factually accurate but what do you think about that fact and then at the end of my phd i'm now like dude that is so wrong it is not even funny <laughs> <laughs> So it's it's like you're saying, like um, the this journey into research and creating evidence, because the the real world evaluations that you are performing, you are creating evidence to help other people alter their services, change their practices, demonstrate that you were ahead of Prof Calra when it came to Iron Man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to help you get in the hole a little deeper. Um, Thank you. You know, no worries. <laughs> that all of those, all of those factors, you know, you were on a journey, and and for you, that journey looked like practical, on the job learning rather than sitting in a classroom or doing a research module or things like that. And I think for me, the evidence of that being a successful way of learning for you is your continued involvement in research. Um, you're always tweeting about research projects. And like you said, you're probably going to be doing it until <laughs> you retire. Probably very much so. Yeah. Um, so the next question is going to be a little bit controversial. Um, do you think that anybody can do research or do you think that research is really only reserved for people who are professors and for um people who've completed a phd um well that depends on whether or not you want to class me as a researcher or not well um, no it's not me classing as a researcher <laughs> do you class yourself as a researcher if you to ask me truthfully, am I a researcher? My mm. honest answer of my kind of where I am right now, I would say no. Why is that? Uh, probably as just as you alluded to, you kind of always see um, researchers, you know, kind of being on big papers, making kind of really big changes to how we perform, how we operate, how we manage patients. Mm to think and then you kind of apply it to yourself and go well you know I've done a little bit of research I guess you know I've looked into some papers and I've I've shown case what can be done and I think it it's very hard to change that mindset of 
to believe in yourself to say you got to get there you can get there um so i'll give you an example um a couple of years ago i was asked whether or not i would consider to apply um as an observer to the board for the british society for heart failure okay so they asked me to apply i said well okay you know i'm very flattered i said i'll put an application in and i had an interview and it was Lynn, um, the CEO for the BSH. It was Simon Williams, the then chair of the BSH, and Roy Gardner. Now, that was probably the most terrifying 30 minutes of my life, because even though I'd been to a couple of BSH conferences, I'd seen these guys on stage. Yeah. These are big names. Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the small pharmacist from South Wales is sitting there just going, uh, hi. Um, but anyway, the interview alluded. And what they basically gathered from that was they said, well, you mentioned a lot about different trials, how you manage patients. So it seems as if you're more interested in research. They said, would you like to join the research committee? So I was like, um, and again, me being either either very clever or very stupidly agreed um <laughs> and then all of a sudden the first committee meeting i'm sat on i even more of these massive names in front of me on a screen and say please introduce yourself i'm just going what am i doing here um it felt completely out of my depth um but by the by anyway um but the data that I'm collecting, the data that I'm showcasing, I wouldn't put on a level that, you know, I'm performing confidence intervals, p-values. Is my data going to change how we manage patients locally, nationally, globally? I, I would like to hope that someone is going to find the data useful. And that's the one kind of thing I try to tell uh, junior pharmacists now who are looking to maybe try and get a bit more involved with data collection mm. is no data is bad data. Mm. You can go in with a mindset of trying to prove an outcome. But if you don't necessarily prove it, that doesn't mean the data's bad. The data's the data. It's trying to, you want to try and prove an outcome. That's great. But if you don't get yeah. it, hopefully that points you in the right direction of how you get there. So this is a very long-winded way of me basically seeing whether or not I class myself as a researcher or not. Um, I would say that I'm starting to get more of that mindset and starting to class myself as someone who is interested in research and trying to perform practice-based research. Mm. Now, whether or not I decide to go down formal routes in the future, PhDs, and it's certainly something that I feel can be driven, kind of forced upon you if you're trying to get involved in research and say, well, where's your credentials? Yeah. Um, but I'd say that's very much down to the individual that's probably talking to you, not as a kind of collective of researchers yeah. telling you that yeah. um, because sitting in those committee meetings now, I feel far more relaxed in the fact that people are telling me, well, you know, the stuff we are doing, it, it's good work. Mm. And one of the kind of um, goals of the research committee is trying to get more AHPs, nurses, pharmacists, et cetera, involved in research. You don't have to be a professor. You don't have to have that PhD but just get more involved yeah. um, and how we do that is I think sometimes we have to remove that mental block we put upon ourselves to say that I can't do this mm. 
Um, and that's something I've certainly had to learn is, especially when I'm trying to present this data, yeah. is, is it good data? Is it worth presenting? Yeah. And I think to begin with, I was like, this is just, people are going to laugh at me. But I certainly, I, I warmed to it. I got better yeah. with it as time went on and I had a bit more confidence in what I was doing. You pick up little hints and tips about how you might have improved um, a certain date collection or if you know um so, so yeah you just learn things as you go on and every little bit of work I'm doing since then is becoming a bit more refined than the previous version yeah. and it's just it's just it's evolving so are you a researcher yes <laughs> <laughs> he says with great confidence <laughs> <laughs> I will I, one thing I've um, always known my entire life, I will always be my biggest critic. Mm. Um, now, sometimes I think it is important to put pressure on yourself to perform at a higher level. But I think sometimes you need to realise then that level where if you put too much pressure on yourself, that's actually going to be a negative connotation. Yeah. That it's actually going to stop you from trying to do things, especially getting involved in research. So yeah. am I a researcher? yes yes i don't have the credentials as per the big guys in involved in heart failure research but i'd say that the level of research i'm doing is more applicable to everyday practice and mm. management of patients mm. i'm not going to be the john mcmurray of wales <laughs> it's not going to happen um <laughs> but if you know i can show you basically how pharmacists can help alleviate nursing time to do more in reach reviews palliation reviews etc and actually that model of working can be sustainable so well i, I think, think... Oh, sorry go ahead finish no i think it's just to say that i think i'm definitely classing myself more as a practice-based researcher than kind of looking at the big trials whether or not i get involved in anything in the future big trial wise possibly but at the moment I'm happy where I am I I, I genuinely love how you've just described yourself a practice-based researcher so one of the reasons why I love research so much is the potential that it has to really alter uh, both patient experience as well as clinical experience and the services that we offer. But when I first started delving into the world of research, I was shocked at how little of the research I was reading was anywhere near clinical practice. And I think that research exists on a real spectrum. And it you know, you're you describing your uh, clinical lead that you work with a lot and how he's like this fortune teller of like the next uh, greatest treatment. You know, like I've worked with clinicians who are like that as well, who um, believe so strongly because they read this paper that even before it gets adopted into nice guidelines, they're giving, you know, an SGL2 out like it's candy or, you know, what whatever that situation is. And I think there's, there's a real gap um, that I think sometimes hinders 
taking those research results and turning them into real life practice. Um, because what happens in the studies where uh, NICE and ESC are like, it's not really cost effective, does it mean that that shouldn't be implemented? Or does it mean that actually we don't know enough about it? Do we need to do some like the style of work that you're doing, this practice based evidence to say, look, we we live in the real world. And while, you know, I mean, you're you're aware of the literature as I am, like most heart failure studies, you know, uh, you're you're doing good if you have a percentage of women that's more than 30 percent in a given trial. So how how strong is the actual evidence between what that research study says, which only recruited a small amount of females versus all of the females that you see in your clinical practice and whether or not that would actually work with them because they're outside of that group that was included in that study. You know, and so I think there's there's that a real need of spectrum from clinical audit, how are we performing to quality improvement, trying to change our services to real world evaluation of, okay, how are we going to implement this and keep this implemented? And what is the impact of this implementation of this new thing? And then, you know, the Paul Cowers and the John McMurray's of the world who are like, hmm, what happens if we mix this and this and create a new way of treating heart failure or whatever? Um, so I think I think it's that's where your perspective and your experience comes really valuable because you're there at the coalface and you're trying to give evidence to say, OK, this is what it looks like when you implement it. Yeah. Um, and I'll give a kind of example of um, mm-hmm. some work we're doing locally now. So we are quite heavy adopters of potassium binders locally. OK. So this- so this isn't necessarily just within Wales. This is just within our locality. Yeah. Um, so we probably initiated potassium binders now probably on 70 to 80 patients over the last three years. Um, and when I kind of speak to colleagues, BSH or ESC, and we just sort of say, well, what's your experience with this? And we, we find that potassium binders haven't really gone anywhere. They haven't really taken off. Um, now, even though we've got the clinical trials showing that they can stabilize potassium, it, there's no cardiovascular outcome data. So I think cardiologists are instantly going, there's no evidence. Um, but we know the things like from the meta-analysis that actually 4 therapy works. What potassium binders do is allow you to achieve the 4 therapy. So therefore, it's kind of, well, isn't this a simple mass equation? The potassium binder plus RASI equals optimized patient, which then should convey in kind of reduced mortality, hospitalizations, etc. So what we're doing at the moment, we've got about 40, 40 to 50 active patients on Lokelma or, or potassium binders. Um, we've monitored their serum potassium over a period of two years. So that's longer than what we've shown in the clinical trials. Yes, this is real world. There will always be um factors. Yeah. exactly there's always going to be other things that may influence results but that you know we don't try to dress it up as a clinical trial mm. um in those scenarios we've looked at the um heart failure therapies before and after uh initiation of binder therapies we've looked at their ejection fractions 
BMPs, uh, assess the comorbidities, effects on uh, creatinine clearance, blood pressure. Um, and then we've also looked at the kind of mortalities and hospitalizations as well. So we're in the process of trying to write that up and get it out there as a kind of real world practice, because from what we can see, there aren't many people using potassium binders, especially as because there's no hard outcome data. But if we can allude that actually in real world practice that these can be used in our small subset of patients, this is what can be achieved. It might just ask, get the question asked. Do people want to start thinking, well, actually, this could be a potential option for Mrs. A that I saw in clinic two weeks ago. Um, and it's all about just applying that to your local practice. Yeah. But but that's again where I think like your work is really valuable because in the the big clinical trial world, um, because of how healthcare systems work around the world, um, you know, the the outcomes of those big clinical trials are all about death and hospital admissions. And the reality is, and I, I believe every clinician um, feels this way, is we all know that it's so much more than that. And I think that that's where that diversification of the evidence base and having some real world work like that, pro, like that, the, that data that you were just describing can actually help inform clinicians who are having to navigate the nuances of that person that's in front of them with their individual um, personalized profile and the complications that that can bring into trying to get them to the guidelines because the guidelines are a great idea and we know that if we can get everybody up on the highest levels then we're going to win in 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 decreasing hospitalizations and decreasing mortality and all of those things that are really really good things but for you know mrs a who might be 96 who weighs barely 42 pounds that might be a bit tricky yeah and that's the thing it, it's not meant to be that kind of clinical trial but the, the thing is real world patients as well I find real world studies fascinating because mm. it's true. It's true to life. It's, mm. These are patients that haven't got kind of, you know, mediocre BMPs or things like that. They've got good going BMPs. They're heavily symptomatic. These are the kind yes. of true to life ones that you are going to see that would never have been recruited into the big trials. <laughs> um, so that's where I yeah. love kind of real world data. It is more true to life and the patients that you have in front of you day to day. I like that. I really like that. You're coming up with some really cool sayings. Definitely like need to go on a mug or a t-shirt or something for all the geeks out there like me. I've got a lady with a good going BMP. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I can get that onto a mug. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, so before we start to wrap up, the other thing that I just wanted to um ask you about that you mentioned is your role now on the British Society of Heart Failure Research Committee and your involvement in trying to increase and encourage other people 
um, who are allied health professionals, pharmacists, nurses, basically non-medics. I think they're now trying to call us all healthcare professionals and I'm like, well, medics are healthcare professionals as well, but okay. Anyway, everybody who's not a medic to get more involved in research. Um, what do you see with your journey and your experience as biggest barriers to people of that professional pathway getting involved in research? I would say the biggest challenge that anyone is going to face today's climate is time. Mm. Um, we see quite often, you know, we're trying to mentor junior pharmacists to become more involved, think about projects they want to do, how they can realistically achieve them. And the first thing they'll say is, well, I've got so many wards to cover. I've got this to do, I've got that to do. And there just isn't time. Um, now, the kind of counter to that and what I'll usually tell people is be smart about it. If there's something you want to do, using things like Excel, data collection tools, et cetera, is make that tool work for you. Make it do the work mm. for you. So if you think kind of, I say plan, I, I'm going to say something very controversial because I do not do this myself, is plan ahead. Think about what you want to achieve and basically get it set up before you start. I need to take my own advice. I don't do this. I'm very much like you heard on the job roll with it um but i am definitely of the mindset that if you get it right if you set things up you think about what you the outcome you want to achieve what data you need to fulfill that set up the data collection tool that it is good to go that the second you start inputting that data the sheet is to, is pulling out the outcomes for you yeah um, so I think and be smart about any data collection that you're going to do. Think about yeah. what needs to be collected, how you want that to look and how we want to present. Yeah. And then let that do it, the work for you. So I think that can kind of get around the time constraint that we often yeah. say to juniors. It will actually let's work smarter, not harder. Yeah. If it's done right, then it shouldn't be as time consuming as what you might first think. So that'd be my biggest advice. Um, with regards to my role with the BSH, um, so again, I still sometimes feel a bit like, you know, David versus Goliath, <laughs> uh, waving up at the, uh, the, the big guys and big gals, um, is very much to get AHPs involved in research. Um, mm. and I think, you know, I was very kind of flattered when you messaged me and said, do you want to be on the podcast? Cause I was like, um, Am I a researcher? We've answered that question now. Um, but I very much kind of had to M and R. I was like, do I class myself as that? Mm. But I figured everyone has to start somewhere. Mm. And what I'm seeing from kind of junior colleagues in my department now is that, well, if you're not, if you've got a plan, if it's something you'd like to look into and you've got a keen interest in it, why aren't you looking at it? Um, and it can be as simple as a poster presentation whether that be to the department locally, whether that then you think, oh, actually, this is really good. I'm going to try and go to a national congress. Mm. Posters are fantastic at just showcasing local research, what you're doing, service improvement, even whatever it might be. But it's a good place to start. Um, so I think part of my role in the research committee is to kind of show that hmm, anyone can do it. <laughs> um <laughs> 
but I think it is it genuinely just to try and say, look, someone has you have to start somewhere. Have yeah. you got an idea? Where do you go? Um, and again, I'm not trying to tell people how to conduct PhDs because I haven't done it. I can't give that advice. Yeah. But what I can tell you is, well, OK, what's your idea? What would you like to do? How to maybe try and get the ball rolling regarding that? Yeah. And then just let momentum take you forward. And I'm certainly still in that momentum phase now. Yeah. So even though where I am at the moment and trying to collect this data on potassium binders or, you know, kind of going back to the early days of pharmacist led clinics and looking at how many of those patients have had hospitalizations or passed away since that time frame. Um, it's just a kit. You just go with it. You just let the momentum carry you from one project to the next. And the next thing you know, I'm sat on a podcast with a very renowned PhD big wig in BSH um, and involved in research committees as well with all of these massive names. It's, it's a bit like a whirlwind tour. I love it. I love it. I'm going to wrap it up there because I think that's a beautiful way of finishing off our conversation. Um, you said that very eloquently and I completely agree with what you said. Like, you know, you just, you just got to dive in and I mean, I'm going to, reveal a little secret here is I sit here and listen to you being like, ooh, I'm talking to a big wig. I'm like, I'm far from a big wig. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the same imposter monster sitting on my shoulder. And I think I think that's the I think that's both the curse and the beauty of research is we we get into this improvement mindset. And we apply it not just to the work that we do, but also to ourselves and our our what we're doing um, in our careers. And I think it's always like, what can I do to do better? How can I improve what I'm doing? Who should I be collaborating with? Where do I fit in into this world of research? And I think, like you said, I love it. Just just go for it. Just dive yeah. in. And why not? And one of the things I go on has been massive for me um, was joining Twitter or now X because it, it sounds stupid to say that a social media platform can give you that collaboration, but it keeps you up to date. It's a very informal way of doing it. Um, and I think I've certainly kind of made connections through mm -hmm. reading different posts, comments, even posting some of the work. Oh, even just, you know, kind of I'm bored on a Friday night. So I tell you what, I'm going to talk about Paradigm HF. It's just you, you get to make those connections. Yeah. The great thing is then you go to national congresses, you meet those people for the first time face to face, and then it feels like you've known them forever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my my kind of recommendations would be, look, no data is bad data. You've got to start somewhere. And um, yeah use things like Twitter, use ways of informal ways of networking with like-minded colleagues and yeah, take it from there. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Reese. Um, it's been fascinating to hear more about your journey. And uh, one last secret before we go is the reason why I approached you is because of how active you are about research on Twitter. 
and you have such a strong voice and reputation um, in the world of the internet <laughs> as being a researcher that I don't think you see that yourself. But that's that's why I approached you was because of that voice, and I, it's it's a it's a prime example of why. Uh, and the power that Twitter can do when it comes to um, your your career within research. No, absolutely. And yeah, definitely imposter thing one and imposter thing two sit by here. And they're constantly feeding in. Um, <laughs> but I am getting I'm better. Some... Too. I've got a chorus behind me. <laughs> but sometimes I just put the earmuffs off and I try to block it out. So we're OK. Perfect. Right. For everybody um, who's joined us today, thank you so much for listening. I hope you found Reese's insight and his journey as fascinating as I have. Um, as per usual, there'll be details in the description, a little bit more about him, where you can find him, how to follow him on X Twitter um, so that you can see and hear all of the great stuff that he is tweeting about. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, for having me. No worries. I'll <laughs> probably see you soon. Absolutely. Take care. All right, take care. Bye. Don't go away. Up next, we have the top three takeaways from this week's podcast by Dr. Rosalind Austin. I'm so grateful that Reese joined us today. I think his unique experience both as a pharmacist within heart failure and the fact that he's heavily involved in a lot of research work and what he classifies with as real world evaluation research um, and his own insecurities around his identity as a researcher because of him not having a PhD or a master's in research or you know formal training around that um, because he had some really good insight and and around how research can be for for anybody and everyone. Um, so for me, top three we takeaways from this episode. First off, I loved his definition of real world evaluation. Um, I've had so many conversations with lots of different people of varying degrees of experience in research, and there's always this really big debate around the spectrum of improvement work all the way up to research in big uh, clinical trials. Um, and where those lines get drawn and when does something become research and when is it not research. And I felt Reese did an amazing job at really simplifying it and making it very understandable. And I loved that how he views the, the work that he does, the real world evaluation, is that it's being true to life. You know, it's real patients with their complexities who probably would have been excluded from a research study, but still collecting and analyzing that data to help uh, other clinicians, other people inform their practices or inform their decision making when they're faced with a complicated patient. So rather than testing new ideas or trying to um, create new interventions or explain new phenomenon or come up with new theories, um, he views that real world evaluation of actually getting 
to grips with the clinical data that's available and compiling it in order to see what the impact of the implementation of some of those clinical guidelines. So sticking within what has been advised either by uh, the board of that pathology or NICE guidelines and how does that actually play out in the real world. Um, so I thought it was a really good definition that he gave us. The second takeaway from his conversation is around his journey and how he learned about research. And it's um, really interesting that for him, it was both through his training early on as a pharmacist and getting involved in some audit work um, that helped to start to formulate how he thought about, how he evaluated, how he created data collection, um, Excel spreadsheets, but also his experience within research delivery. So working as a clinical pharmacist for big research studies, helping expose him to various different degrees of protocols, what the rules of the road for doing research were as being his way of educating himself. And he continues to push his, push his own education as well along that, rather than the more formal way of doing it by doing a PhD or a master's in research or things like that. Um, but it's still, regardless of his journey, it's still brought him to that place where he's now helping with and informing quite a lot of um, research ideas and is starting to transition between being, to use his words, this isn't me, just the data collector to somebody who's actually driving the ideas as well. So it was really fascinating to hear how that experience within research delivery actually fueled his curiosity and his desire to be more involved in, in research projects. The third takeaway, which I loved, is that um, no data is bad data. And definitely need that on a mug or a t-shirt or like an inspiring wall poster. And I thought that was so powerful because so often when you're looking at research results, if you haven't proven your outcome and, you know, it's out there in the, the journal, it's very hard to find neutral or negative trials that have been published. Um, and he's, I believe that he's right, that there is no such thing as is bad data because even if it doesn't prove what you thought it did, it might point you towards something else. It might highlight something you hadn't even thought about, and it will still hopefully inform how other clinicians think, how they think about their patients, how they make decisions about their patients. And so that act of compiling and condensing and reporting on that data being a way to grow our evidence base, which I thought was really, really good. So that's it for this episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Please, if you have any questions, please drop them in the comments, either on your podcasting platform of choice or through YouTube. If they're specific to Reese, you can actually, in the description of this podcast, find how to find him at a follow him on Twitter. And I'm sure he'd be happy to answer any questions if you directly message him. Um, so yeah, that's it. Remember to subscribe to this podcast. It really helps increase the visibility of it. It helps to share and to help demystify research for all of those individuals out there who might be, um, like Reese, a little bit 
unsure about the adventure of research and going into that world, it's just a good way of sort of introducing them to those ideas. So make sure to like it, leave a review and uh, subscribe on YouTube or through your podcasting platform of choice. Um, The next episode should be out in another three weeks. And I look forward to seeing you all then. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.